What does it mean to be human? What is a person? And where did we come from? Hello and welcome to the God's Story podcast. I'm Brent Siddle. And a very special guest on the show this time is Joshua Rasmussen, who's just published a new IVP InterVarsity Press America book called Who Are You Really? A Philosopher's Inquiry into the Nature and Origin of Persons. Joshua is Associate Professor of Philosophy at Azusa Pacific University in Azusa, California in the States. And this is a fascinating read. If you enjoy a bit of philosophy and like to dig deeper into things like I do, then you'll love this. Joshua, hi. Welcome from the States. Thank you. Hi. Good to be with you. Appreciate oh, thank you for coming on the show. It's great. Now, to uh, borrow the title of your book uh, as a huge opening question, but who are we really? Yes. That's your question? You want me to tell that's, you who we are? That's my question. Yes, very briefly, if you would. In yeah. two minutes, he says, laughingly. Yeah. So that that is the question of the book. And uh, my goal is to investigate our natures as deeply as I can. And step by step, chapter by chapter, piece by piece, I begin to uncover a picture of the depth of you. And part of the picture includes a description of you as being deeper in than just molecules in motion. So sometimes people have this idea that molecules come first and then somehow you pop up out of those molecules. And I offer an argument for uh, the opposite picture that actually you're deeper in than the molecules and that who you are really is fundamentally a being that's in the image and nature of the foundation of all reality. And you are a conscious being that has all sorts of interesting powers to think, to choose, to intend, and you also have value. And so that that's, I guess, my short answer as to who you are. But the big question is how a being like you could even exist at all in the first place. Yes, that's my very next question. Why do conscious beings like ourselves exist? Uh, let's, uh, let, let's deal with the big questions on this podcast. You know, why do we exist? Yeah. So one of my strategies in this book is to invite readers into what I call a cave of consciousness. So in the cave of consciousness, we're exploring in this dark cave who you are and then how you could come to be. And one of my methods in this book, as you've seen, is to remove theories that don't match our observations. So I take a lot of time to collect observations, uh, observations of ourselves as thinking beings, as feeling beings. And then I say, okay, well, here's a theory. Uh, one theory, for example, is that there are no thoughts in reality. Some philosophers of physics and uh, physicists have suggested that, well, maybe, maybe there actually can't be any thoughts anywhere. Because you can't describe thoughts in the foundation of matter in the vocabulary of physics. And it's hard to see how you can get thoughts by just rearranging matter. So they suggest there are no thoughts. Well, I remove that theory. I say that that contradicts our observation of ourselves thinking. And I begin to remove other theories uh, of where we came from and how we came to be until I arrive at a theory in terms of, as I said before, the sort of foundational stuff of existence. Somehow, we came out of that. Uh, it takes the foundational stuff to make make us. It, it can't be something later downstream to make us. So that's just kind of a sketch. Obviously, there's a lot to fill in there. 
I think Socrates would have had fun with that. I think he would have been disgusted at the idea that we can't have thoughts. I mean, can I imagine what he would have replied? Uh, Probably. I love. I spent. Uh, I spent my first year at university studying Greek philosophy and classics, and I fell in love with the Socratic dialogues. We'll, we'll come back to him later on. But why should? Let's turn the question around. Why should conscious beings like ourselves even exist? Yeah, why should we exist? As in, mm. like, what's the ethical value? Is that what you're well, asking? Well, yeah. Well, why should we? As in, how probable is it that it happened by accident? Oh, I see. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Why should we? In terms of expectation? Yeah, yes. Absolutely. I love this question. Yeah. yeah. So you know, one of the questions that I raise is um, a construction question. Uh, I call this a challenge because the challenge is to see how you can take atoms, smash them into each other to produce conscious beings like ourselves. And it's not just producing consciousness, okay? It's also binding the consciousness together into a single being who can have a unified perspective and who can exist from one moment to the next. So this is a deep, deep construction challenge. And I actually argue that it's in principle impossible for mindless units of reality to roll into conscious beings. But more modestly, we could put this in terms of expectation, as you suggested. We could just ask, as a matter of probability, even if we grant the in-principle possibility, how probable is it if we start with a description of reality, matter in motion without a mind? Okay, that's our description. That doesn't predict that mind would come to be, not in itself. And once you explore the conditions that are required for us to come to be, you see there are so many different conditions that I would argue that the probability is very, very low. So that in a way, an answer to your question would be that we shouldn't exist. We just should not exist at all, at least if reality is fundamentally mindless. Of course, part of my project is to show that if we flip the frame of reality so it's not fundamentally mindless, actually it's fundamentally a mental reality, has a form of consciousness and a power to intend itself, then we have different resources. Now we have the resources to produce beings like us. And, um, and so now maybe we should exist. We might even expect our existence. But let me just add one more note here, which is that merely positing a mind at the foundation by itself still doesn't explain how we can exist. It helps. It removes a lot of problems you get with the mindless view because it, because it gives you different resources. But you still need the right kind of mind and the right kind of powers, as I argue in the book, to get beings like us. So it's a big, it's a big project. Um, to explain our existence. You talked earlier about the fundamental nature of reality. I guess philosophers through the centuries have debated whether there even is a reality and what sort of reality it is and yes. how much reality we can see, thinking of Plato in his cave, for example. Yes. But how do our personal realities, do you think, and do you argue in the book, how do our personal realities relate to the fundamental nature of reality? Yeah, I appreciate this question because I think sometimes we look past ourselves through our eyes out into the material world and we almost forget that we're actually part of the world. You know, we're actually units of reality. Our very eyes through which we're seeing are parts of the world. And then we start using our eyes to see our own eyes. Like in a mirror, we can see our eyes, right? But when we're seeing our eyes, what are we really seeing there? Shapes? Spatial structures? You know, sure, we can see spatial structures, but there's something else that we witness from within, which is conscious awareness. This experience of, a, of having awareness. And so what I see a person's as being as a kind of window into reality, that we can look through the window of our own conscious awareness of our own selves to see aspects of reality right within conscious awareness. Like if you're having a dream, a vivid dream, 
And in your dream, you can notice that there's a difference between one part of the dream and another. I was having a dream not too long ago where somehow I knew I was dreaming and I was thinking about my book. You know, what else am I going to think about while I realize, hey, I'm dreaming. <laughs> and I remember noticing that the dream was very vivid and that the walls that I could see in my dream seemed crystal clear as if I were awake, yet I just knew that I was dreaming. And what's interesting is that I can distinguish one part of my dream from another, one image from another, which is evidence to me that these images are really there. Because if they're not really there, you can't distinguish one nothing from another, nothing. So there's a kind of reality there. And then the question is, well, what is this reality? It's part of our world. It's a window into reality. And so this is where the personal realities, I think, give us insight into the kind of world that we live in, that you're not going to get just by looking at rocks or matter from the outside. So this is where the sort of scientific investigation of the material world from the outside can fit really, really well with this interior investigation of the window of consciousness from the inside to get us a, a, a more complete picture of reality. Otherwise, like you said, you know, we're just stuck in the cave in the darkness. We don't really see what it really is. Yes. I mean, uh, thinking of 19th century philosophers, Schopenhauer, Nietzsche, uh, yeah. all struggled with this idea of how much, how much reality there actually is, if I can put it basically like that. To what extent is our perception of reality subjective? How much mm -hmm. can we really know? How much reality is there really out there apart yeah. from us? So this is a very vexed question, and let me just say that my own thinking on this has transformed, even in my research for the book. Um, so in graduate school, I took a number of different courses on the philosophy of mind, including a course just on your question, just on perception. The whole course was just about that. Um, how do we see things? Is it all just in your mind? Is it all just subjective? There is this question about how you can actually see past your own consciousness to a world that doesn't even depend on your own consciousness. How is that even possible in principle? And what, one thing that helped me think about this more deeply was some work by Donald Hoffman. He's a physicist, uh, scientist who's done some interesting work making an argument that perception actually includes spatial contents in your own experience and that those spatial contents depend on consciousness. They don't actually exist apart from mind, apart from consciousness. And this might lead you to a question about his view, which is, does that mean that everything's purely subjective or can you get any kind of objective perception of reality? And in my work, I try to do some analytical surgery and without going into all the details here, just to kind of give that bird's eye view of this, I tried to clarify these terms, subjective, objective, mind dependent, mind independent. And I articulate a frame according to which some aspects of our reality are private to us. Like if I have a thought in my mind, nobody else has that thought in, in their mind. And they can't just by looking at my brain, know what it's like to be me having that little conscious thought. Uh, they can't know that directly. They just see the molecules in the brain. So some parts of our reality are private, but then other parts of our reality are shared. And what I would argue, and I argue for this in the book, that we actually have a power to perceive both internal contents of reality as well as shared contents of reality. And it's through this window of awareness. I call this the window theory of perception through which we can actually make contact with internal realities and external realities through this power of conscious awareness. So in the end, there is a kind of objectivity to it and a kind of subjectivity to it, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. And um, I think the postmoderns, to paint them with a broad brush, deal with this and get 
and and do have helpful things to say to us about the nature of reality, don't they? They're not the uh, deniers of reality that they're sometimes painted to be. But right. What role? Let's come on to feelings. You mentioned feelings. What role do feelings have in our consciousness? Well, we have feelings, first of all. So that that's a big uh, thesis right there. And I spend a long time in that first chapter on feelings, articulating arguments for the existence of our feelings. And you might wonder, why is he arguing for the existence of feelings? Like, isn't it obvious? Sometimes we feel happy. Sometimes we feel sad. Isn't that just obvious? But the reason why this is such a big deal in the philosophy of mind is that once you include the reality of feelings, then you have that deep and difficult, hard problem of explaining how in the world feelings can fit into a world. Especially, this strikes me if I look out and I see maybe some dust clouds, and I imagine, okay, could those dust clouds turn into feelings? Like the feeling of love, the feeling of anger, you know, is that even possible in principle? I agree, I argue it's not possible in principle. And so the way that feelings fit into consciousness is that I would say they're contents of consciousness that reveal that the kind of beings that we are are actually very, very special. We're not just molecules in motion. There is something more to us than that. How is it that we can have structured thoughts? And how, in fact, do we make thoughts anyway? Yeah. So thoughts are another one of those familiar treasures that we witness right within consciousness. And I argue that we can have thoughts by organizing concepts that we get through experience. And that the structure of the thought is actually emergent from the organization of con um, concepts. For example, if I think that I love you, that's different than thinking that you love me. But there's three concepts in there that are all the same, you, me, and loves. But they're in a different order, and that signifies different structure. So this is another aspect of reality that we find right within the window of our own consciousness. Uh, let's come on and talk about free will, because you spend some time in the book um, on this thorny subject, fascinating subject of freedom of choice or free will or whatever you want to call it. Why do we have a free will and do we have an entirely free free will? Yeah, so I would argue that you can witness your freedom through introspection. Uh, this is one of your powers to be aware of yourself making choices. And I, I try to leave open um, how you analyze free choice. I make some observations about some of the common attributes of free will. Um, one of the attributes is that somehow you are, if you are the one freely raising your hand, you as an agent are in some way a source of it. But in your question, you very wisely ask, you know, well, how much do you have? You know, is, is there limits to, to that? And I actually do make the point that you can have some power to choose without thereby having, you know, infinite power. It can be constrained, right? Um, and so this is this is very important because this allows us to have different theories. And one of the theories, by the way, is a kind of compatibilist theory where free will is compatible with determinism. Uh, in, in theological circles, some Calvinists like the compatibilist theory because it explains how God could decree the world in a way that's compatible with us having free choice. And while I do make the point that I do think options are part of the concept of freedom, I also leave open this compatibilist um, uh, view for the sake of modesty and point out that as long as you are the source of your action, that still implies something very, very special about you and about reality, which is that it's something that's not mindless that is the source of your actions. In other words, you're not a puppet of mindless particles. You actually have a power to choose. And this is very significant about the kind of reality we, we're in. I mean, I was just watching a video recently by a physicist 
who said that she thinks the concept of free will is incoherent nonsense. That's what she said. Well, I also happen to know that in her own view, the foundational reality that pulls the strings is mindless uh, physical bits. So then I would actually agree with her that if mindless physical bits pull all the strings, then you don't pull strings. You, you don't have free will. And so then that sense, I would agree with her conclusion. It's just that if you do have free will, then that flips the frame of reality. This is actually a pointer to reality not being fundamentally mindless, but instead you are a real actor with real powers to pull the strings yourself. What's the relationship between us and our bodies? <laughs> I'm just laughing because I love your questions. And each one is just a huge question. I'm sorry. I, I, I know. I sat there when I was typing these out and thought this poor man is going to think <laughs> no this is great though questions. well it, it's it's the book itself invites the questions because it does it does this is what happened to me as i read it i thought i've got to ask him about this i need to ask him about this this is fascinating so yeah so yes. us and so our bodies mind, yes yeah. so there is a steep question about how through thinking in your mind you could even move your body this is connected to free will because if you have the power to choose then somehow your power to choose has to propagate into the material world I was getting a picture recently of this in terms of dropping a pebble into a pond. And if you imagine that the pebble represents your conscious intention to move your arm, and then when the pebble hits the pond, it causes these ripple effects in the pond. You see the water rippling out. That represents the chain of effects leading to your arm actually rising, right? But the deep question, this is kind of a mystery in a way, how is it that your internal first-person conscious intention with the structure of a thought, let my arm move, or I, I want to move my arm. That's the structure of your intention. How does that actually ripple into the neurons firing to lead to your arm go up? How does that actually work? So I offer a theory, uh, I call this a substance theory, which shows how in principle it would be possible for a being like you to link together different states of reality. Uh, including the state of intending and then the state of your arm going up. And part of this involves just this basic power of um, to, uh, what I call a capacity, basic capacity to, to do things. And this is in contrast with other theories where you aren't a substance that has basic powers, but instead there are just states of reality that lead to other states of reality. But I argue that if you just have states of reality leading to other states of reality, then you do have this kind of hard question about how one kind of state could possibly be sufficient for another. Like how could the intentional state be sufficient for a geometric state uh, in, in, in your brain? Um, I don't think that's even possible in principle. So I argue that it's not the states that cause the other states. It's actually the substance. You are the substance, the being that has basic powers to link these states together. Okay. Um, yes. So that's a sketch. Yes, that's a very good sketch. Okay. So how do we make a conscious being with a mind, body, and free? I'm going to come and ask you about artificial yeah. intelligence in a, in a minute because this interests me as well. But how do you actually make a conscious being with a mind, body, and freedom of will to do yeah. the things that you and I can do? So I, I offer a working model. And let me just say, you know, in, in answering all these different questions, um, I'm sort of inviting the reader to use their tools of analysis to check what I'm saying, see if it makes up uh, makes sense in their own mind. And I'm trying to come up with a model that can make sense of a lot of data, but I'm not suggesting that I have the last word on this. So this is my current working model of how to make a conscious being. Um, again, I'm removing theories that don't work. So 
the theory that there are no conscious beings, there are no thoughts, I remove that because I think that we do have thoughts or are conscious beings. The theory that we're made out of mindless bits of matter alone, I remove that for various reasons um, having to do with different puzzles that result from trying to build conscious beings just out of mindless parts. One of them, just very briefly, is this binding problem of how you get a bunch of different parts to bind together to have a single perspective rather than to have like one part of the brain having its thoughts and another part of the brain having its own feelings and its own perspective. How do they go together into a single perspective? And I make the argument that mere causal interaction is not enough because you and I are causally interacting, but we don't form a third being that has its own thoughts and feelings. It doesn't work that way. So what we need fundamentally, I argue, is the right material. We need the right material to produce us. And this is going to be controversial, what I'm going to say next, but I'm just going to go for it because I'm convinced by it, which is that not even an, uh, an all-powerful being could possibly do impossible things, okay? Including what I think is impossible, which is to create a conscious being just without any material at all. So I actually think there needs to be the right material to produce us. And I make the argument that the only way even God could do it is to use the material of his own substance. So that in, in some deep way, we're really, really, really connected to God. That the idea of being in the image of God points to a deep, deep connection to the, the fabric of God's stuff or substance. And that without that substance, um, we could not even be made. And it's just by a process of, a process of elimination. It's the only way to do it. Yeah. So how was a, f I mean, you write in your book, uh, a first person personal reality is fundamental to all other realities. Now, yes. how is a first person personal reality fundamental to all other realities? And what sort of reality is it that could do this? Yeah. So first, what does it mean to be fundamental? Um, so when I say it's fundamental, I mean, there's nothing else that produces that thing. Okay. It's not derived from uh, more basic realities. And already that might sound a little bit puzzling. Like, how could there be something like that? But I make the argument um, that in order for there to be a reality, okay, there's got to be something at the base of reality that provides a context for everything else. And in the book, I make use of this idea of a base reality to consider how we could explain our own existence using the right material. That's the key question. We, we, need, a, we need the right material. And if the material is itself a kind of personal stuff or per, a personal substance, right, then I argue that it's the kind of stuff that could come into or form uh, out of itself other personal realities. So the kind of thing it is, is more specifically the kind of thing that can have thoughts, can have feelings. But I also claim that you only really know what this thing is through your own insight, through self-awareness. Um, you, you can't really articulate even what this is just in terms of like shapes or turtles, okay, or just these external objects that you see, you really need that first person witness of your own self. And I think that that witness, witness of yourself, the this, this center of consciousness, gives you the insight into the, the kind of material, the, the substance, the stuff out of which the rest of materials that are personal um, could be made. Does that make yes. sense to an yes. extent? Yeah. So we're dealing with God, in other words. Yeah, so we could call this God. Now, in the book, I don't call it God no. because I just want to leave this open. Mm, yeah, sure. But this is kind of a sequel to my other book, How Reason Can Lead to God, you know, and there I fill out the description. But here, for the purposes of this book, we can just sort of leave that open in a way. 
Yeah. It has no, to at least be personal. Yeah, yeah, that's, yes, that's yeah. the whole point of the book, isn't it? No, fascinating. Yeah. One more question before we close, um, because a, a lot of us are concerned about artificial intelligence and robotics, yes. and um, there are a number of people in our world who seem to think they can replicate and create um, in a godlike way. How will our personhood be challenged by AI and robotics, or will it be challenged by AI and robotics? Yeah, so I think it's already challenging our beliefs. Um, you're familiar with chat GTP, uh, yeah, which sure. is very interesting because I was actually chatting with this artificially intelligent communicator, yep. asking it philosophy questions. And uh, it was quite impressive to me. I mean, it, it was offering me analyses and synthesizing things that kind of suggested to me that it was pretty intelligent. Okay. And so this makes us wonder, well, could we organize these mindless chips to form something that itself has a real mind? And if we can, then this actually would illustrate a solution to that construction challenge. How do you construct us? Well, the solution would be you get the mindless chips and you organize it into the right function. But I argue for in the book, uh, I make a, a, an argument that function is not all on its own enough for conscious understanding. And one way of illustrating this is that we could imagine computer chips functioning as if they understand something, but they don't actually have that first person conscious experience of understanding. And I kind of draw this out in a few different ways in the book. But what this leads me to think is that, again, you still need the right materials. So I don't think in principle, merely organizing things into artificial intelligence will thereby make those things conscious. However, I'm going to offer a caveat, and I don't go into this in the book, um, but this is an open possibility given my theories, which is that it could still be that there are some conditions in the material world where when those conditions are met, a previously existing substance that's conscious could integrate with the, um, the, the, the I want to say, user interface or the machine or the body or whatever it is. So th this is why, you know, babies are born, because there are certain configurations of matter that open up some kind of portal or opportunity for a conscious being to come become integrated. And, and if that's right, it does leave open the sort of scary possibility that we could figure out how to artificially engineer a portal for consciousness to come into machines. It's not ruled out by my theory. No, uh, it's not ruled in either. No, I think we have a lot of questions to try and grapple with and uh, as a human race, really, as, a, as the century progresses. But um, I fear it's upon us and we haven't really done much debate about, with it. But anyway, Joshua, Josh Rasmussen from uh, the Associate Professor of Philosophy at Azusa Pacific University in Azusa, California in the States. His book from IVP America is called Who Are You Really? A Philosopher's Inquiry into the Nature and Origin of Persons. It will make you think. And if you uh, love a bit of philosophy, as I do, and um, get hold of a copy because it's really good value. Joshua, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash Podcast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash God Story Podcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.